He was the one who loves us and gave himself up for us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Is that good news? And he is now alive, reigning forevermore at the right hand of his Father. Can you please open up to Romans chapter 1 as we are going to have for ourselves a a, uh, sermon around the topic of Christ's resurrection. And we're so glad that you're here. If you're visiting or if you haven't been back in a while or if you're looking for a church, we're very glad you're here. My name's Tom and I pastor alongside two of the other gentlemen, Keith and of course our beloved Vic who uh, was just up on stage. We're, we're going to be in Romans 1 as we uh, look at the, the reality of the resurrection. But uh, just as we were saying before, Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood and that happened on Good Friday. We're thankful for that. Um, and, and maybe that is not particularly good news for, for some of you as you think of it because you, you don't actually know that you're sinners or you just don't know how, how, how enslaving and how damning and how unbreakable the bondage is between you and death, but through sin. Sin is in every fiber of your being. If you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian, it's, it's in most of them, but, but we're getting sanctified. Uh, uh, but if you're a non-Christian, sin is in every fiber of your being, and every sin that you've ever committed is against your account before the justice of God, and you are justly condemned. And that is horribly bad news, but it is not the last word. It is a bad word, but not the last word. The good word, the good news of the gospel is that on Friday, the Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus discharged your debt. He paid for your sins, and he was buried so that all those who trust in him can be counted before God as dead for your sins, even though you live. By faith, God reckons you as dead for your sins, you as paid for your sins, and all of that. So we are praising God for Easter. And if you're not a Christian, we hope that today is the first day of your whole new life in Jesus Christ as you cast your sins to him and are forgiven of them. Amen, everybody? That's what we want. If you've been invited here today, we love you. We're praying for you. We hope you become a Christian. Before, I trust that you're finding Romans chapter 1 now. I'm giving you plenty of time. Just before we start, I just want to remind you that if you're based somewhere down on the Gold Coast or closer to that area, um, we are planning a church down there in July by God's grace. We're very thankful and excited to be doing that. That'll be beginning at term three, basically. But in the interim, now starting in term two, we're going to start a Bible study down there. So that's going to be led by the somewhat handsome uh, James up on the back, just shaking his head over there in the, in the uh, 80s glasses. Uh, he's going to be leading that. So if you want to be there, if you want to attend that Bible study, because it's closer to, instead of driving all the way up here, as I know a bunch of families do, uh, you can speak to James and see about uh, what day that's going to be and what location and all of that. So, so please uh, be praying, of course, for our church plant down on the Gold Coast. That's going to be an exciting endeavor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here in Romans chapter 1, we read the following in verses 1 through 4. The author introduces himself to start off with. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, and here's our theme for this morning, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless this word to us in our midst. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
Well, this, uh, this gospel is our theme this morning, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see in verse 2 there that as Paul starts opening up, and he, he's, this is just his introductory uh, 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 words, like, uh, I like Paul, he's my kind of preacher. Before he's even into the point of the sermon, he's given a 10-minute recap of the gospel because he loves Jesus. And it is that gospel which has sent him to be this apostle, this, this preacher, but he says there in verse 2, he says, this, is, this gospel that he's going to be proclaiming, it was promised beforehand. This is an ancient gospel. These promises of God are not something that started with this church or in the last 50 years or even back to the Reformation. In fact, this gospel did not even start in the days of Jesus. This gospel has been promised for, for hundreds of years prior to Jesus. In fact, this gospel is as old as time itself. And if you allow me to just go back even further, these promises of the gospel are older than time itself because they were promised and planned before creation started. Before God created the world, the Father and the Son in the union of the Spirit came into a divine pact, what is sometimes called the pactum salutis or the promise of salvation where they promised together to create a world that would fall, that the Son would go and redeem by His blood, that the Spirit would go and save a people, that the Father would then receive in His Son and give to His Son an eternal kingdom of sinners made righteous in glory. This promise of the gospel is, in other words, it's no, no new startup. Like maybe you've all, maybe you've been this person, but let's just pretend it was a friend. Everybody's had that friend that is really excited, really enthusiastic, and about as evangelistic as Paul about their new entrepreneurial challenge or their new startup business. They're selling your oils or Tupperware or something equally as useless, but you thought they were really useful because they, they pitched you the, the sale. Paul is not zealous and excited and enthusiastic about this fairly new startup doctrine called the gospel. He is sent by God because it is by the de declaration and demand and command of the eternal God that the world hears this good news, that Jesus died for sinners. This is an ancient Gospel. Before every other religion got thought up in the minds of men on mushrooms and being inspired by demons and going up on mountains, whatever else it was, this is not just the, the best and oldest religion. Yeah, it is, but it's, it's the oldest. It's the most original because God who created us is the one who designed this good news of the gospel. We're not just proud and assuming that, that we have the best ideology. We are, we are bending our knee before God's word that tells us, that assures us, and that for thousands of years before Jesus came was promising that God would save sinners through his son. And it is sure, not just because it's, this, it's of antiquity, because it's ancient, but it's sure because it's, it's promised. Look at verse 2. He does not just say that it was suggested beforehand, that there were clues beforehand, but he says in verse 2 that this gospel was promised beforehand. Can I just say a word to maybe skeptics in the room about the, the truthfulness of the resurrection or maybe the Christians who try and help out your friends who are skeptics? There may be many churches that meet this morning and spend their whole time trying to defend to you the fact that the resurrection is somewhat believable if you pile all of the truths and evidences and proofs up into one big pile and you can come to a conclusion that Jesus was most likely raised rather than still dead and hopefully if you consider that evidence you might think that Christianity is reasonable. That's not our church. 
That's not how I preach, and that's not how we consider the promise of God. You need one piece of proof and evidence that Jesus was raised. Before we see any historical evidence, and it is abundant, every piece of proof points to Jesus being raised. But the one piece of proof we need is that the eternal God promised that he would raise his son. That's why we believe. You might have a really helpful apologetics book at home. You might have been convinced of this by, by a great online apologist on YouTube, and, and yet sometimes you find yourself wavering. You want to find a rock-solid, infallible, unshakable foundation for believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? God promised it. That settles it. We accept it and are saved, or we reject it to our own peril. But don't pretend it's because you have more information than the word of God itself. This is a promise from before time that was sealed by God as a sure foundation. And he goes on to say it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is to say all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament books, all of the, the prophets and all of the Scripture are testifying to the fact through, through prophecies and sometimes through, through analogies and sometimes through types and foreshadows and, and clues that God had woven into the life of Israel. God was promising and foretelling that His Son would come and die for us. And look at verse 3 through 4. The, the topic or, or the focus, the subject matter of the gospel is the subject matter of all of the prophets and scriptures. So the gospel is what the scriptures are about and the gospel and the scriptures are about his son. Verse 3 says, all of the gospel, all of the scriptures concerning his son who was descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. This, who we will end in verse 4, is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, that Jewish fellow from Galilee who was born in Bethlehem, raised by Joseph and Mary, worked as a carpenter, started preaching after his baptism, was eventually killed on pseudo-political and religious uh, claims, who then rose from the dead. That Jesus has become and is the anointed saviour called the Christ. That's the Greek word. Old Testament language would be Messiah for the Jews, our Lord, the King. Our, our Savior is our Lord. He is the world Savior. This is Jesus, that man from Galilee. That is who the gospel, that is who our religion, that is who the whole of the Testament, Old and New Testament scriptures is all about. Jesus is the subject matter of the Bible. You want the Bible in one word? It's Jesus. You want the gospel in one word? It's Jesus. You open the hatch of Jesus and you find in him all of the riches of God's revelation. In him all of the riches of wisdom. All of the knowledge that we need about God shines forth through what the scriptures say about Jesus. And in the gospel, here's the good news for the non-Christians, in the gospel is the message that you can be saved and forgiven of your sins, freed from the condemnation of hell by simply believing that Jesus died and rose for you. So, so you don't have to believe and know everything that the scriptures say ever. No one does entirely yet. We'll wait for, for heaven till that. 
I'm not saying you have to learn everything that there is to know about Jesus and then you get Jesus. I'm saying you accept this core fact that he died for you and rose for you and your sins can be forgiven by God because of him and in him the rest of the scriptures are revealed. Believe that. Jesus is the core of the scriptures, the core of the gospel. You take, you take one step away from Jesus. Here's the warning to us Christians who are always novel, looking for a cool doctrine, something hip to try and pick up and be the next great theologian on a new and novel doctrine. You take one step off the centrality of Jesus Christ and you are a mile away from the gospel. Jesus Christ is our jewel. He is our prize. He is our treasure. He is the core, the center of the gospel. And this Jesus, as, a, as the, the person Jesus, he has two lineages that Paul talks about. Look in verse 3. He says of this son, God's son, Jesus, that he was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, he was a descendant of the great king from the Old Testament about a thousand years before Christ, who God had promised so many great things to and done so many amazing things through, who had established the Jerusalem city, who had uh, purchased the land that the temple would be built on. Like, he was a warrior king like no other except for his descendant, Jesus. Now, the fact that Jesus is descendant from David technically and legally means he can both inherit the kingdom of David, sit on the throne of David, that was very important for the Jews as they understood Old Testament prophecy, but also that he can, he can receive and fulfill everything that David was not good enough to fulfill. So he was receiving from David and he was greater than David and he had to be, his lineage had to be descendant from David for that to be the case. So why can he be the Jews Messiah? Because he is a descendant of David according to his fleshly line. His mother and his non-biological father were both in the, uh, the tribe of Judah. But you see, we see even more. He doesn't just have one lineage because he's not just one nature he's a man like no other man he's a king like no other king because while he was descended from David according to the flesh he was descended if we want to use that crude language from God according to his eternal nature meaning that all of those prophecies about David's kingdom that made no sense if it was speaking about a normal human now start making sense Jesus can receive the legal kingdom from David and he can fulfill all of those divine promises because he's also God the Son. So you want to ask Jesus, prove to us that you're a son of David. You can take a DNA sample. You could look at his birth certificate. You could ask his parents. They were bearing witness to the fact that he was a son of David and yet... Paul tells us that there's another person we can ask to give us witness to his other lineage. There is another lineage that he has, which is all the more important. And that he says in the, in the rest of verse 4, he says, And, according to the flesh, he was a son of David, and declared to be the son of God in power. He was also the son of God. Now, there is, a, there, is, there is dangerous ways that you can talk about that saying, yeah, see, he's son because Jesus was, was born from God. 
God the Son and God the Father, like, like, like we, we've got neighbors that'll say this, that'll come knocking on your door early hours of Saturday morning. They'll, uh, they'll try and convince you, the, the witnesses who will try and say that, that God the Father is the real Father and that God the Son is, is like the Son of God in the sense that he's a lesser being. We don't believe that. What we believe is this technical theological term. Hope you're ready on a Sunday morning for these kinds of language. We believe in this technical theological term of eternal generation. In other words, that we say God, the Son, is the Son of the Father in a relational sense, and yet he never had a beginning. It's not as if the Father was around for a day, a week, a year, a few hundred million, billion years, or even a split second before the Son, because both of them are eternal. Both of them have the one essence, the one substance, but they have differing personalities or personhood. So, the, so that the son didn't need to be born in human flesh and then die and rise to be the son of God. The point, though, is that to us, who do not have an eye or a glass that peers into the eternal subsistence and essence of the divine trinity, to us, he declared that this Jesus born of Mary was that same being, God the Son. Those two truths came together and were proved by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So here's our theme this morning that we're getting our mind around, is that the, the resurrection of Jesus, that, that early Sunday morning in Jerusalem, tells us and proves to us that Jesus is the Son of God and not just a political martyr not just a religious zealot, but truly God the Son in human flesh come to save us from our sins. That is what the resurrection declared. It was not just a, a necessary step because he died. Well, he also had to come back. That's a bit awkward if he stays dead. He, he didn't just come back to tell the disciples that my atonement worked. He was declared publicly to hundreds and now billions through the preaching of the gospel. He was declared to be the Son of God by that resurrection from the dead. Psalm 24 tells us, it, it asks in this poetic way, it says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go into the, the holy sanctuary of God, Yahweh? And it says, only those with a pure heart. Only those with clean hands. And then it sounds like it's saying, if you're holy, you can approach God, which is hard enough. But then the rest of the, the psalm says, and, and who is this man walking up to the most ancient of doors that separates God from sinners? Who is it that is marching to those ancient doors and commanding them to rise? Who is it that is commanding these doors to be swung open so that he may come in? It is the Lord of glory. He is the one who is coming and demanding that those doors open. These are the two requirements of Jesus. That he would be holy and perfect and clean heart and pure hands. And that he would have the authority to command the doors that were shut by God to be opened by the command of God. This Jesus was both son of David and son of God. Pure and sinless and perfect 
and authoritative, divine and majestic, able to say to those doors, be opened, for he had a great throng of souls, millions of souls. Will you be in that throng who are following him, that crowd who are following the victorious Jesus through the gates into the heavenly Jerusalem to live for God forevermore? Will you be there? Have you believed that Jesus is the Son of God, declared to be so by his resurrection in power? Look at verse 4. Again, halfway through, we see not just that he was declared to be the Son of God, which is entirely necessary. We needed a, a sacrifice that was God and man. We needed a king that was God and man. We needed a prophet that was God and man. We needed a representative that could represent not just one of us, but all of us. We had Jesus, the Son of God. But just as you would, you would ask, I want to know whether Jesus is descendant from David. If you were a little Jew walking around uh, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and somebody asked you, do you, re- do you reckon Jesus is descendant from David? And you go, I don't know, let's ask. Who do you go and ask? You go and ask his parents. Who is your lineage? Tell to us the, the bloodline of, of your son, Jesus, or Yeshua, or Joshua, that it would have been in the original day. You ask them. Well, who do you ask when you want to know if Jesus is the son of God? You ask the Holy Spirit. Or, or better yet, lest we sound too charismatic this morning, you receive the witness of the Holy Spirit that has already been given. Okay? The Holy Spirit spoke. This is, as you think about your Trinitarian theology and how we live as a Christian and how we, how we uh, believe salvation and, and God's works in history work, here's an important uh, tool to have in your, your, your uh, biblical toolkit as you understand Scripture. The Holy Spirit's task, His job that He agreed to before time was that He would be the one to come and mediate the presence of God to us By pointing the people of God to the Son of God. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. To point the people of God to the Son of God, Jesus. To always shine a light on Jesus. To always lift our eyes to Jesus. To always make clear the work and the salvation of Jesus. That is what what shows to us and proves to us that the Holy Spirit at work is truly the Spirit's end of God. Is that people are making much of Jesus is that people are in love with and believing in and having faith in Jesus, where Jesus is preached clearly with power from Scripture. That is where the Holy Spirit is at work, not where people are shaking on the ground and walking around in fire tunnels and speaking in ridiculous languages, but where Jesus is clearly proclaimed, believed on, and glorified. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that Paul talks about this this topic. He says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we, we look over Jesus' life, he was present and bearing witness to the divinity of Jesus at every point. The Holy Spirit, we're told by Gabriel at the virgin birth, is being announced to Mary. Gabriel said, didn't he? He says, the power of the Most High... And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and therefore you will conceive, though you are a virgin. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke through Gabriel, of course, but who made that virgin birth a miraculous reality to prove the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And he was present all throughout his life. When, when Jesus was baptized and John the baptizer put him under water and brought him back up, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove flying down. Not an actual dove, but like a dove flying down, bearing witness that this is the anointed one of God, the divine son of God. He was around uh, even as Jesus came back from the desert and he went to do his ministry in his wisdom and in his teaching and in his ministering. We're told by Luke chapter 1 that he was in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there with Jesus, bearing witness to him being the Son of God. We also see Jesus speak about this very thing. He says that his works are done by the Spirit of God. We see that he says his works prove him to be who he says he is, who is the Savior God. We also see that uh, Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he reads that passage that is no doubt very familiar to many of us. The, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me and has anointed me because God has appointed me to this task. Uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to preach to the, the slaves, free the, the imprisoned, all of those things that he says. He was doing his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as that was happening, the Holy Spirit was bearing witness that he was the Son of God. We even see that the manner of his death on that Good Friday at the crucifixion, when Jesus breathed his last and he gave up his spirit with a loud cry. And, and the earth itself shook and shivered and quaked under the immensity of the situation that was happening right there. Its very own creator who spoke every dust and rock and tectonic plate into existence just died on its own soil. The whole earth shook. There was an earthquake. Also at the same time, in the midday sun, the sun was blackened out by God. And it was pitch black in this area of Jerusalem. And then also we recognize that in the temple at that very moment that Jesus died, the six inch thick woven leather curtain that separated the worshippers from the presence of God in the temple was torn in a moment from the top down. All of these things occurred around the death of Jesus because the Spirit was witnessing to the fact that this was the death of the Son of God in flesh. That's why that, that Gentile Roman centurion who just helped kill Jesus saw all that happened and said, surely this was the Son of God. How much he understood was he, was he saved in that moment? No, I don't think so. But, but was he coming to the understanding that this man was more than a man because the Spirit was at work? Yes, he was. And yet the greatest sign, as, as these are all the signs that the Spirit bore through his life, that Jesus was the Son of God, the greatest, clearest, most powerful, most unquestionable, most undoubted proof and claim that Jesus is the Son of God is the fact that the Spirit rose him back to life. That resurrection Sunday morning was the Spirit bearing witness to the whole of creation that Jesus is not just alive, but is the Son of God who was dead and is now alive. So he says that, 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 that if you want to know how Jesus can inherit the promises of David, look at his birth certificate. And if you want to know that Jesus is the Son of God, look at his resurrection. Look what the Holy Spirit wrote down or witnessed or bore witness to, what he testified about in the resurrection. 
The resurrection was the chief sign. It was the, the, the brightest jewel on the crown of the proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And what it means for us today is we, we start thinking about the implications before we close. The implications are many. We'll only look at a few, but they are many. And, and, and first of all, what we see happening is Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, was raised from the dead, is that we see that Jesus has, this, this one's pretty obvious, has overcome death. But not just for himself. It's not that Jesus overcame death for himself, but that he overcame death on the highest order. So that in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the first, I am the last, the living one. Behold, I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. In other words, I open death with a click of my clicker. It's an easy button press. It's an easy door uh, twist with the key in the, the doorknob. That's how easy it is for Jesus to make death release all of its captives and come into the glorious kingdom of God. He now, in other words, won over the power of death so that death is still killing people. We know that we've had loved ones that die. We know that we have seen death ravage the world and it is still the chief enemy coming against the image, image bearers of God that is human beings. And yet, that death is on a leash. Jesus controls the death. It never takes a soul a moment before Jesus allows death to swallow up a soul. Jesus owns death now. He has the keys to death and Hades. He is sovereign over death. There is, there is many people in Scripture, it is true, who came back to life. But every single one of them died again. They had a momentary, miraculous thing worked by God where they came back out of the grave. Lazarus was one of them. Jesus healed multiple people throughout his ministry. It happens even more in the book of Acts. And yet, none of them were an eternal resurrection. They could never say, I am alive, never to die again. They literally had to say, I'm alive again, to die again. You go through it once, kind of sucks. To go through it twice, really sucks. I would have rather to stay dead, probably. But anyway, here they are. They're, they're alive but they weren't resurrected. And, and even though other people, every Christian will be resurrected, no one can say like Jesus says, I am the resurrection. We are all going to be raised as Christians, and yet we are simply the, the light rays coming off of the supernova of resurrection that is Jesus Christ. He is the source of resurrection. He is the power of resurrection. He is the center and the outpouring power of the resurrection. We are simply people who receive that power from him. We're acted on. Jesus rose himself. So on one hand, Jesus has overcome human death, and that is infinitely significant. But secondly, not only did Jesus overcome human death, Jesus overcame the death sentence delivered to him by the Father through the law. This is even more significant. Not only did Jesus overcome a human death, he overcame the death that God himself delivered to him. There has never been an agony in death like Jesus' death. There has never been a humiliation like Jesus' humiliation on the cross. There has never been a death like Jesus' death. In other words, there's never been a deeper grave than Jesus' grave. Because he wasn't just, he didn't just expire like we expire. He was driven into the grave under the wrath of God and the purpose of God for billions of other souls. No one has ever been deader than Jesus. 
And yet no one has ever been more alive than the Lord Jesus Christ is right now. No one has ever been more condemned than Jesus. Just think about this. Though many souls will spend eternity in the fires of hell being punished, they will each one of them be being punished for the sins committed in one human lifetime. And yet Jesus was condemned infinitely more than every one of them because he died in a condemnation that counted for billions of people's condemnation. No one has been more condemned by the Father than the Son himself. And yet no one now stands in the most blessed, glorious joy of the Father in this moment than the Son himself. He did not just overcome the expiration of life. He overcame the condemnation of the law in our place. He overcame the death penalty from the Father in our place. That's the good news of the resurrection. If you're not a Christian, the good news is that what is on offer has been purchased by blood, has been achieved by Jesus' resurrection, but for you, it's totally free. You just stop trying to be good enough and you simply stop trying to, to run from God and you accept the truth of what God has written and what he has borne through history. You accept the truth that Jesus died. He died for sinners. I'm a sinner. He died for me. I cannot please God. I cannot fix my life. I cannot escape the condemnation of hell. I will run my entire life and I will awake in the fires of hell. I give my life to Jesus Christ. I let him be the Lord that he already is. I bend my knee. I believe and I receive freely and in that moment. You are a Christian. You are saved, declared in Jesus Christ and therefore free from the condemnation of God and free from the power of the law. Jesus was declared by the Holy Spirit to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection. But we can keep on going. He was also proved to be the promised divine suffering servant. In the book of Isaiah, we see this all over the place, that this, there's this coming person that Isaiah was prophesying about 700 years beforehand, and he's going to come and suffer in the place of all of the sinners. And when Jesus died, he claimed to be that, su that suffering servant. He claimed to be the promised sufferer in the place of sinners. But big whoop, anybody can claim to be something in their moments of dying. But the resurrection proved by the Holy Spirit powerfully that what Jesus said was true. Therefore, we, we have this, this integral connection between the death and the resurrection. We don't, we don't take one without the other because each one has absolutely no significance without the other. Have you heard people say this today? Like, well, well, we're not so much talking about the virgin birth or trying to defend the fact that, you know, penal substitution and Jesus on the cross and his miracles, whatever. We just want to plant our faith on the historicity of the resurrection. That's garbage. Because even if you prove to me that a man rose from the dead after being crucified by the Romans, that proves nothing for me that is no good news for us unless the man who died was dying the penal substitution as the suffering servant, unless that man was also God, unless that man was, was born of a virgin and was God in flesh. Like all of these things are connected. So, so Good Friday is not Good Friday without Sunday. And Sunday is not Resurrection Sunday without Friday. It's only a significant death because the one who died was the one who would rise. And it's only significant rising because the one who rose is the one who died for us in our place and for our sins. So that the suffering servant would, 
of Good Friday was proven to be such by the resurrection of power in, on Sunday morning. Also, we can see that Jesus is the divine son to be king. There's this, this language used in the Old Testament where God would speak to the kings of Israel and say that he had this father-son relationship with them. So that he would say that the kings are kind of little g gods. Not, not heresy, that's just how God spoke of them. Or in another sense, he would say that they are my son. I will be to them a father and lead. They're like my prince and I'm the real king. It was a way to keep them humble and yet bless them with that, with that relationship. And so the day of the king's coronation, when they got anointed and put on the throne, it was rightly said of them that this day they have become a son of God. And in that kingdom language, Psalm 2 verse 7 says, of the father to the son, Jesus, it says, today I have begotten you. Today you have become my son, is what Psalm 2 verse 7 says. This day I have begotten you, and therefore the rest of Psalm 2 is about Jesus receiving a throne that rules over the nations for the glory of the father. So that in his resurrection, we see, and this is what you see through the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, and you look for where they speak about the resurrection of Jesus, and then what follows. They always say, Jesus died, rose, and now reigns in God's kingdom over the earth, which means something very, very important. If everything we've said is true, and it is because it's by the promise of the eternal God. If Jesus who died was the Son of God, if Jesus rose proving that he is the Son of God, if God the Son was in the person of Jesus dying for our sins and rose and he is the king over God's kingdom and he's the son of David and he is the suffering servant and all of these things are true and he has overcome death and only he holds the keys to hell, that means that he is the one you're accountable to. That means that Muhammad will have no say on whether you go to heaven or hell. That means that Buddha has absolutely no say on your spiritual standing before God. That means that your new ageism or you... You and your own religiosity or spirituality without religion, whatever you want to call it, you have no say on whether you go to heaven or hell. Jesus has the say. You don't have a say on whether Jesus is the king. God the Father had the say and he made him king. You don't have a say on whether or not your life is good enough to get into heaven or whether you're bad enough to deserve hell. Jesus has the say and he's already declared it. You don't. You will go to hell if you don't believe in him. In fact, he said to people speaking to him in his day, those who believe on me will be saved in that moment. They will be saved. But whoever does not believe in me is already condemned. You're not waiting for the day that you are under God's judgment. You are under God's judgment now. You can know the answer now. You are not good enough. God will punish you. You are condemned. You have no hope. And yet the God who declares that, and the God who will judge you, and the God who is the one who will punish you, is also the God that came and took your punishment. And that is proven by the fact that Jesus died a glorious death and experienced a triumphant resurrection. And from his throne, he commands you, be saved. Don't wait for the day when you meet him in wrath and anger and punishment. Be saved today. Meet him today in grace and mercy and love and forgiveness like a father welcoming home a lost child. Today be saved or reject to your own peril.
But we pray that you believe, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead for our salvation. Let's pray. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads and, and pray to the Lord God that he would bless us as we think over this reality. And I just want to say that if you're a non-Christian and, and you feel that the Lord has been putting onto your heart the need for salvation, please come uh, to the front later on and speak to one of us pastors. I'll be, I'll be ready to, to talk with you about that. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a majestic, glorious, holy, sovereign, eternal being. And as much as that is worthy of all of our praise, and as much as that is worthy of all of our, our, our worship for eternity, and even that will not be enough, even though that is true and that is good objectively, Lord, that leads us to fear and it leads us to condemnation because we are not good, we are not worthy, we don't have pure hands, we don't have clean hearts, we cannot come into your presence. And yet, Lord, we know Jesus and we know that in Jesus, he was good enough to come into your presence. He was sovereign enough to declare things over us and make them true. He was what we have not been. He is what we could never be. He is God. He is just as you are in a divine being. He is God. And yet, Lord, he became one of us lowly creatures for our salvation. We just think about that this morning. We think about how much grace how much humility, how much mercy, how much love, how much compassion you have had, God, to send your son and for you to come, Lord Jesus, into our state in order to do everything that was needed for our salvation. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that by your raising him from the dead and by your testifying through your apostles and all those who wrote the scripture, through your testifying, we now know the truth that Jesus is God who died for our, in, for our sins and in our place and rose as king and judge and righteous priest forevermore. Father God, this, this one thought alone is enough to, to take up our, our whole day, our whole life, all of eternity. And look, yet, Lord God, I pray that it find application in our hearts. I pray that those who have rejected Jesus would now today receive him that those who have opposed Jesus and, and, and disregarded him as irrelevant or a nice touch or something religious for my family members, I pray, Lord God, that the reality of Jesus' death, resurrection, and coming judgment would bear on our hearts. Lord, would you give faith to those who need faith to believe? Would you strengthen the faith of those who already, already believe? And would you give us boldness by your Spirit to be declaring evermore the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For he is our King, he is our Saviour, and in his name we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.